Right now we're in the, uh, the book of Matthew, and so we're in our, our fourth week of five in a sermon series called Compassion and Commission as we're preaching through the book of Matthew. And one of the things at Remedy that um, we hold uh, dear is the Word of God. We, we pick books of the Bible and just preach through books of the Bible. Um, and when we're done with it, we just pick another one and go to that one. So... Uh, we believe in the power of the word of God. We believe in its sufficiency. And so um, because we have such a high view of scripture, um, we like to read it publicly. We believe this is a good thing for us to read it publicly. And in honor of his word, I'd ask that you stand. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 10, uh, starting at verse 24 through 42. It's kind of a big piece of scripture. We're going to be in this, this whole section both weeks. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, of course, you can find one underneath you. But we're in Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 24 says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who cure the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you have more value than sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge them before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father in heaven, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter in law against her mother in law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross, take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, this is a substantial piece of scripture and a weighty piece of scripture as we look at what it means to be a missionary of yours. And I confess that never is there a Sunday where I'm up to the task. And so I am in desperate need of your spirit. I am completely aware of my deficiency and my utter need for Christ in these moments. And so I pray that you begin with me to change my heart, to wrap my mind around, to have deep affections for Christ. I pray that, Lord, you would speak through me, give me clarity of mind and clarity of thought that every word you want me to say would be yours. I pray for my friends here and all who receive these words, um, not that they're mine, but that they're yours. God, that you would change their hearts, change their minds where they need those things changed. Fill us with compassion for the lost. And Lord, 
Give us the realization that we've been commissioned if we're in Christ by the Spirit and we've been already sent out on mission. Help us see that there is so much work, that the harvest is truly plentiful and the laborers truly are few. And we are a laborer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we are in our fourth week of five. Fourth week of five in a sermon series which started in Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 35. Um, and it ends in the, all the way in, in where we read today in 1042. And this five-week sermon series is called Compassion and Commission. And the compassion part comes just from chapter 9, 35 through 38, where Christ um, shows his deep compassion for people, where he brings his disciples and he says, look out. And you can see that it says he had compassion on them because they were harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And he tells them, behold, the, um, the harvest is plentiful and the labors are few. So he's wanting his disciples to see his compassion he has for people. And he's wanting his disciples to have that same compassion for people. And then all of chapter 10 is this commissioning of these disciples to go out now and fulfill this desire in chapter 9 where he's trying to tell them there's a massive harvest out there and we need to do it. We need to get out there. And so the first part of chapter 10, 1 through 15, is called all kind of review. We saw that, first of all, he calls them. We, we saw in that 1 through 15, these three stages of being called as a missionary. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you've gone through this. The first thing is that you're called. The next thing is that you're given authority. You're given the Holy Spirit. And then you have this ability to be a missionary. And that last one is that you're sent. And so we saw from verses 1 through 15, as we looked at this text where Jesus sends out his disciples to Israel, um, you are a missionary sent. And so after that, the, the second week, the third week, we were in 16 through 23. In the 16 through 23, we took that last one where you're, you're called, you've been given authority, and now you're sent. We took that third one where you've been sent. And last week, we talked about what it means to be sent. We made five observations from 16 through 22, five observations about being sent. And there's some things that we needed to know as missionaries that are sent. And these things were that we're sent out as defenseless men and women. We're sent out as sheep among wolves. And so we're not going to kill people. We're going to convert them. And the next thing we saw is we're also told to be shrewd or intelligent or prudent. We're supposed to be wise. And so the way we do ministry is not just willy nilly. We don't just try to let it happen. But instead, since we've been given such an enormous task, the gospel this is such a huge thing. We're to take care of this. We're supposed to be intelligent. We're, we're to be wise in the way we carry out this plan, not just hoping it falls in our lap. After that, we saw because we have to be intelligent, we also have to be holy. We saw that third point where innocent as doves and Christ has called us to be holy people. And I said, we can't we can't begin to talk enough of the importance of how necessary it is for you as a believer to live out a holy life in front of people. That is one of the, the greatest ways that you can carry out this missionary endeavor is being a holy person, living out righteousness in front of people. And then they see that and they're drawn to it. After that third one, we had this massive promise where... We don't know what we're supposed to speak, but the Spirit will speak through us. And so when we're freaking out about things, God's promised that He's going to speak through us. Now, we know that that's couched in the context of persecution. It's not just sitting across coffee um, with a loved one, though it might happen. For sure, the Holy Spirit might give you the words, but it is couched in the context. And we just the importance of knowing the context that we have this. This is an amazing promise. As we're sent, the Holy Spirit is in you and He will give you words. And the last thing we saw was persecution is sure to come. We saw that in 21 through 23, but we see that right there, especially in 23, when they persecute you, 
So we know as someone is sent, we're going to be persecuted. It's a for sure thing. And so we're grabbing that last little part of persecution. And that is going to pull us into these next set of verses from 24 through 26. And today, um, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, 100 years ago, a preacher, um, he was uh, he titled as he taught a sermon on this particular text, 24, or at least wrote a commentary on 24 through 42. He called it the king cheering his champions. He called this section of scripture, the king cheering his champions. And what that means is this. If you look at all of chapter 10, almost all of chapter 10, with the exception of the, the listing of the disciples in one through four, um, if your Bible has red letters, it's all red. Um, and this is the major Christ has five huge teaching discourses in the book of Matthew. And this is the second teaching discourse. The first one is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the second one. And so what this is, all of chapter 10 is Jesus talking to his disciples and he's given them a briefing or giving them some instructions on what it is to be a missionary. When they're out there, he can't say, oh yeah, I forgot. Let me shoot him a little text and remind him of a couple other things about being a missionary or or shoot him an email. I just remembered something. And and of course, Christ, he's Jesus and he's God, so he's not going to forget anyway. He doesn't need to do that. But the point is, is that he wants them to be fully equipped with all the instructions that they need before they go out. And so we are getting the benefit of seeing the entire briefing of the instructions. And so as we're on this, this last part, I think it's awesome. Spurgeon called it the the king cheering his champions. I stole the title, but, um, it was all his. Uh, so I didn't really steal it. I just borrowed it. Um, so, but what we're going to do today is we're going to start at 24 and we're going to go through 42. And as we're thinking about being sent, as we're reflecting on those observations about being sent specifically that fifth one, which is we know that persecution is coming. We're going to we're going to pull that in for this last bit. And we're going to make nine observations of being a missionary. Nine observations. Now, I only did four first service, but I figured, hey, it's the second service. We got all kinds of time. So I'm going to do all nine with y'all. I mean, we'll be here for a couple hours, but I'm kidding. I can't do that because then y'all wouldn't say anything to y'all next week. So I'm only going to do four, um, but I just thought I'd mess with you. All right. So um, we're going to uh, we're going to do <laughs> we're going to do 24 through 42. We're just going to do four uh, and then we'll do the, the other ones next week. But first, but first, I'm talking about being a missionary, okay? I'm talking about being a missionary. And sometimes this, this term just kind of flies past us and we're like, what does all this mean? What is this missionary talk? And some of you might be very familiar with it. But I wanna, what I want you to do is uh, see with me from the scriptures uh, where being a missionary finds its roots. And it finds its roots in the very beginning. If you flip one page over... Let me show you what Christ came for. We know in Matthew 9, verse 13, Jesus is having a conversation with Pharisees and he's telling them to go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's what he's wanting them to remember. And then right after that, he gives us a statement which tells us this is why I'm here. This is why the Messiah Christ has come. This is why Christ. This is his mission. Why he came to earth for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Now, we know that no one is righteous. No, not one. We've all fallen short. We know that from Romans 3. So really, he's come to call all of us who are sinners. How does he do that? What's the way he's coming? to? Is he just coming out and he's saying, everybody repent? Well, there's a problem. He can't just call everybody to repentance. Because if he just calls us to repentance and there's no payment made, then there's no true appeasement of, the, of, of his father. Payment must be made. Appeasement must be made. So the way in which he's come to call sinners is to die for them. 
And this is the good news. This is the gospel. This is the message that we have. Whenever he's saying this, the, the disciples don't have the benefit yet of knowing the full story. But Jesus, when he's saying, I've come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners, it's because he knows that he's going to go to a cross and he's going to die for you and me. We should have died on the cross, every single one of us. But he's going to go and die for us. And when he dies for us, payment has been made. Appeasement has been made to, of the wrath of the father that was on us. All that wrath that was supposed to be on us was there put on his son. And since that's happened, there is no wrath on us anymore. We're now free. If we put our faith in Jesus and his work on the cross, we cannot be called sinner anymore, but righteous, beautiful. And so this is the message we have. But I want you to see where it finds its roots, because it finds its roots beautifully from the very beginning. Genesis chapter three. Um, there's a, there's a little, in 3.15, something called the Proto-Evangelium. Proto means first. Evangelium comes from the, it's where we get our word evangelism, and it's just the gospel. So it's the first gospel. It's the first time in the scriptures where God tells us the gospel. And what we're going to see is, in Genesis chapter 3, before Genesis 3, the world was operating as God has intended. He had created Adam and Eve. They were living in perfect communion with him they got to walk in the cool of the day with him there was no sin imagine imagine no sin perfect relationship with god they had that and he said you can eat anything except for anything off this tree and of course as the story unfolds that's the very thing they do the serpent deceives them and they're, what's going on, Adam? It wasn't me, it was Eve. It wasn't me, Eve. It wasn't me, it was the serpent. And then ever since then, husbands and wives are blaming everybody besides themselves, not taking their own fault at hand. And so the Lord, at this moment, uh, when, he, when he knows what's happening, he starts pronouncing judgments upon them. He starts pronouncing judgments. And so we see he pronounced judgment upon the man and says that he has to work. He pronounced judgment upon the women and said that um, she'll have pains in childbirth. And then he pronounced judgments on the serpent. And in 14, it says, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above the field, beasts of the field and on your belly. You shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put now here's where it gets good. This is where in the midst of pronouncing judgment after judgment upon them, God's going to send out a bit of hope. He's going to give them some hope. This is what he says. Here comes the promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman speaking to the serpent. And of course, the serpent was Satan. I'm going to put enmity between you, Satan and the woman. All right. What is, why is he saying this about the woman? Well, of course, here he's talking about Eve, but from the New Testament's benefit, looking back, we know that he's also talking about um, Mary, who eventually give offspring. Look what he says. Um, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. So this offspring is the key word, and we know that this is talking about Christ. So we know there's enmity between Satan and Jesus, God. And look what he says. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus will destroy you, serpent. You're going to have some level of what it looks like victory at one point. You're going to, we're going to see the cross happen, and everybody's going to think, oh no, Satan's won. But three days later, the resurrection happens. That's the bruising of the heel. The cross happens. Oh, and you just see the devastation on all the disciples in those three days. The, the bruising of the heels happened. We don't know. But then 
and glory. Here comes the bruising of his head where Christ is resurrected. And then all of a sudden he is triumphant. And the promise, the hope that is given to us and all the way back in Genesis three is coming to fruition at the resurrection. And so now as Christ's followers, we are just telling the same story. It all started in Genesis three. And that's our story from evermore is the, the very first gospel. You were part of this. This is the message we have. You were part of these people who were sinners. But now, if you put your faith in God, because he made a promise in Genesis 3, and he's carried it out 2,000 years ago, and it's a promise being held out even today in 2011. That's our message as we go. And so we know that as we go and we proclaim this message, Jesus tells us in 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. And the fleeing is just an obvious sign. If you aren't seeing fruit right now in this particular place, there is a plenty number of other people that are ready to hear the gospel. There's, there's tons more work, ton, plenty more evangelistic opportunities for you all over the world. So keep going. The harvest is plentiful. And so as we see that, we're going into 24, and what we're going to do now is look at uh, nine observations or nine characteristics about being a missionary. And remember, the context of 24 and 25 as we're going in is this persecution. And he says this. He says, when they persecute you in 23, look at what it says 24. Remember that when they're persecuting you, here it is. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. This is something for a missionary to never forget. We are never going to be greater than Jesus. Every student can be strived to be like his master. Every one of his children um, who are God's children can strive to be like him. But never are we to strive to be greater than him. As a matter of fact, since that's the case, and this is in the context of persecution, what we should know is the way the gospel of the kingdom is going to advance, primarily, is going to advance in this world Through persecution. It's going to happen through persecution. So here's the first characteristic of a missionary I want you to see. The first characteristic is this. The missionary knows. And and all these these characteristics are going to be uh, using the language of, if you're a missionary, this is what you know. This is a characteristic of you. You know this as one of his missionaries. The missionary knows that he will never be greater than Jesus. Look at 24 and 25. So have no, I'm sorry, the disciple is not above his master, nor a servant above his his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Belzebul, if they've called that master of the house Satan, in other words, if they called him, how much more will they malign those of his household? If if they called Jesus Satan, what do you think they're going to say about you? Of course, they're going to say terrible things about you. And you should realize that you are never going to be greater than him. Spurgeon says, instead of wishing to avoid bearing the cross, let us be content to endure dishonor for our king's sake. Let us be content to endure our king's honor. So now we're thinking about this. We're all looking at this point, number one, and we're saying the missionary knows that he'll never be greater than Jesus. That's a pretty kind of not very tangible statement. I want to put a little... um, I want to put a little understanding of what this can practically look like. What does it practically look like to understand the missionary knows that he'll never be greater than Jesus? And just to add, nor should he want to be. But I want to give you a a story, uh, and we don't have to look any farther than God's word to find a story. Uh, Remember, 
Jesus is telling these disciples and they don't know everything. But in Acts, they do post-resurrection and they're living out this mission. And so I want you to see just right there in the very beginning in the book of Acts where the disciples get to live out this truth where they realize, they know that they will never be greater than Jesus. Here's the story. In Acts chapter 5, Peter, who kind of was the bonehead for a while, but at Pentecost, Acts 2, totally got it and went out with amazing courage and started preaching with a lot of boldness. A lot of boldness. And so he's preaching with boldness and they arrested him. Uh, And it says they put him in public prison. And during the night, uh, they were told that they weren't supposed to preach. And so they put him in prison. And when they put him in prison, uh, there he is in prison. And so what does God do? Does God leave him in prison? No, God gave him a task. He says says that he sent an angel to come down and open the prison doors and brought them out. And then in verse 20, it says, go and stand in the temple and start speaking to all the people the words of life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach right away. So we can see Peter with great boldness is telling people he gets put in jail and angels just knocks the door. I mean, a guy can do whatever he wants. And he brings them out here and they start proclaiming more. So obviously the people get very upset. They don't want the, the Pharisees at the time, the Jews at the time. They don't want this message being proclaimed. But these the missionaries know Never is there a moment where we're greater than God. There's never a moment where I'm supposed to think I'm greater than Jesus. So what do they do? They, they arrest him again. The council arrests him again. They bring him to you and they say to him right there in 28, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet you filled with Jerusalem with your teaching. You're not obeying us. Why aren't you listening to us? And you attend to bring this man's blood upon us. And this is the boldness of Peter. He says, but Peter said, and the apostle said, we must obey God rather than men. That's what it means. That's exactly what it means to say we're never going to be greater than Jesus, nor do we want to be. We must obey Jesus more than you. And so the story keeps going. It says the God of our he says the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When that obviously when the council heard this, they were filled with joy. No, look what it says. It says when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to and wanted to kill him even more. And so one of the people in the council whose name was Gamaliel, Gamaliel says, stop, stop, stop. Before you kill him, I I, I got I got something I want you to think about. Remember all these other guys? They thought something was they thought they were great. They kind of did something. They weren't great. They fizzled out. It was no big deal. Well, this is what I think we should do. And this is his advice. Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, this is what Gamaliel says, it's going to fail. Leave Peter alone because it's of man, it's going to fail anyway. Remember all the other guys? And he says, but if it's of God, you're not going to be able to overthrow him, be able to overthrow him. So just leave him alone. You might even be found opposing God. So they took Gamaliel's advice. It was good advice. Um, But this is what happened. So when they... They, they decided to take Gamaliel's advice. They bring the apostles back in. And this is what they do right here. They said, all right. When they called the apostles in, they beat them again. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So they don't kill them. They just beat them up real bad and then tell them, don't speak in Jesus's name. Now, watch this response in 41, because this is exactly what this is exactly what people who are missionaries that say we're never going to be greater than Jesus. What's the attitude after you just got beat? And been told again not to speak in Jesus' name. Here it is. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor of the name. That's pretty amazing. I just got beat down 
And I am so happy that I was counted worthy to be beat up for Christ. That's the kind of missionary who realizes they, re- they I am never going to be, be be greater than Christ, nor do I want to be. And look what they do. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Why? Because we got to obey Jesus. We're not going to obey you. So that's the first, I think, um, characteristic that we want to grab. And I, I think it's a good thing for us to see. Uh, realizing that we're never going to be better than Christ. So now, um, after we've finished verse 24 and 25, we go into 26, and you see at the very beginning of 26, if you have an ESV, it says, so. And so, some of your translations, if it's not ESV, might say, therefore. This is the Greek word, therefore. And so we know that when the therefore is there, it's saying, the word therefore is saying, based on this information you just heard, now I have some things to tell you. So, Jesus is saying, based on the fact that you know persecution is going to come, and I know you, pers- you know persecution is going to come, you're more than likely feeling some fear. I would be feeling some fear. You'd probably be feeling, that makes me a little nervous, Jesus. <laughs> you're telling me I might die, which I love you, but still, you know, dying scares me. Perfectly normal. And Christ knows that this is a, a, a thought in their life. And so he's going to give them some instructions now from 26 down to 31, admonishing them or exhorting them or encouraging them. I know you're scared. I know you're fearful, but don't be. Don't be fearful. I'm going to give you some reasons. Jesus is going to give them some reasons not to be fearful. And what we're going to do is as we see Jesus start listing out these reasons to not be fearful, we're going to take those reasons and we're going to make them our characteristics of a missionary. We've already seen one. That he knows that he's never greater than Jesus because persecution's coming. And now we're going to see some more characteristics based on the fact that Jesus is saying persecution is coming, but don't be afraid. He's going to tell them right here, have no fear. He's going to tell them again in 31. Fear not. So let's read the text. He says, so have no fear of them. And the them obviously is the persecutors from verse 23. Have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed. Nothing is hidden that will not be made known. This, this language of revealed and hidden um, in, in theological words is, is known as eschatological language. Uh, the Greek eschatos this just means the end times or last things. So this has some, some last things, end times kind of language where he's talking about a final revealing. That's why the book of Revelation, it just comes from the word reveal, where the end has been revealed to us. That's all Revelation is. And so Jesus is using some of these eschatological words and saying, in the end, things are going to be revealed. Now, remember, this is in the context of persecution. This is in the context of people persecuting you, saying, when they persecute you, don't worry, because there will be a revealing to them of things. Everything that's being hidden right now is going to be made known. Don't worry. Don't be fearful. And he's making an argument. He says, don't have any fear for, and here's the reason why. Nothing is covered that won't be revealed. And what he's telling them is this. All the things that are going on right now, persecution wise, when these assailants are coming against you, they, they don't understand fully who you are. They don't understand fully who they're opposing. But one day they will. There will come a time where it's going to, it's going to be revealed to them. Now, you, you can rest in that and you can have um, some, some comfort in that, knowing that one day the, your assailants are going to realize who they're opposing. So here's the second thing I want you to see. The second thing I want you to see is um, 
<laughs> the second characteristic of a missionary is that the missionary knows that one day all wrongs against him or her will be vindicated. All wrongs against him will be vindicated. Now, don't take this this mindset. Well, that's good news. Because whenever you do that to me, I can just rest assured that God is going to strike you down. That's not our that's not our heart. Our heart is even though they oppose us, even though they persecute us, we still want them to be converted. We're not going to withhold the good news and say, you've really ticked me off. I'm holding salvation away from you. I'm going to give it to the next person. That's nice. We still want them to get saved. All right. But we know that as we lovingly share the gospel with them, all opposition, all assailants against us are direct opposition to Jesus. And one day Christ will make all things correct. One day God will, and we're not God, all things will be made right. So we know the missionary knows that all wrongs against us will be vindicated. Justin Martyr, he was a, a preacher in the, in the third, third century. Um, he was telling his people as they were being persecuted. He tells them this. He said, remember, they can kill us, but they can't hurt us. It's all they can do is kill you, but they can't hurt you. They can't take Christ away from you. So that's the first argument that Christ used when he knows there's persecution coming. He knows that they're fearful. He tells them everything that's covered is going to be revealed. Everything that's hidden is going to be made known. And then he moves on to his next reason for telling them not to be fearful. In verse 27, he says, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Um, In a sense. Well, let me say this first. The disciples are living with Christ right now and haven't seen the cross and haven't seen the resurrection. So they don't know everything. But there will be a day, which we've just seen in Acts 5, where after the cross and after the resurrection, all these teachings, and we, we know that Christ from this verse is spending some intimate time with his disciples here and there. And as he's telling them things, he's calling it um, in verse 27, 27, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whispered, proclaim in the dark, in, in the housetops. So we know that Christ is spending in these three years intimate time with the disciples. He's calling it in the dark. He's calling it um, whispering. And this just means he's given these 12 disciples, these people that are close to him, personal instructions, not for everyone. That's not when they hear it. They're like, I don't fully understand that yet, but it is for them. But what's going to happen is when the cross happens, when the resurrection happens, they're going to look back at that time and they're going to say, oh, those things he told us in the dark, those things he whispered, those teachings that were just for us after the cross and after the resurrection. We here we stand. Those things make sense now. I get the whole story. I finally understand it. That totally makes sense to me. And so what we're seeing here is Christ or the disciples in some sense are going to have in some sense, more of a public ministry than Jesus. You've got to be careful the way you say that, because Jesus obviously is still public to us today. He's the most known about figure in the whole world. He is, he is God. But they were the disciples in, in ways to have a very public ministry with this message after the resurrection, that they were going to go teach these things fully. They were going to teach these things publicly. Um, even when they didn't, Even if they didn't understand them, they knew they were going to at the resurrection or they did find that out. And the main point is this. They weren't supposed to keep it a secret. So here's here's my observation or characteristic of a missionary. When remember, this is telling them, don't be fearful because the things I'm telling you right now, you're going to have to say one day. So here's the third one. The missionary does not fear because you will be called on one day to declare it from the housetops. 
to declare it from the housetops. This, this housetops, um, in the first century, uh, the roof access to the houses, house, houses were usually flat, and so roof access in the first century was very accessible. And getting on someone's roof was very easy. I find it extremely difficult. I used to love getting on roofs whenever I was little. Too old now, and you know, I got a bad hip. But now, but when I was old, I, I, younger, I used to love to do it. But in the 21st century, it had been great. Like, you could get on any housetop you want. They're very flat. You can jump up there. And the point is, since it was so accessible, he's using that as a metaphor to say, when you're on these accessible housetops, in the view of all, use that platform to shout out the message of the gospel. And so, the missionary does not fear because you will be called one day to declare it from the housetops. Here's the deal. You can't be afraid or you will not get on the housetop. If you're fearful... You will not use that platform to talk about Jesus. When the, when the moment comes to talk and it's time to get up there and proclaim the message, if you're fearful, you're too scared. You're not going to do it. And so he's warning them to not be fearful because a characteristic of a missionary is you got to talk about Jesus. Even when you're scared, you got to do it. So don't be fearful. So maybe a good question for you is this. What would be your housetop? And that's kind of a strange question to ask. But what would be your platform, if you would, to share the gospel? And are you being fearful in that? When it's time to talk about Jesus, are you, are you doing it? Because we all have to some level, some more, some less, and it has nothing to do with you know, how great you are in the eyes of God or how loved you are in the eyes of God, your platform. But some of you do greater and some of you have, might have less. But whatever it is, are you using it? Or in the times of talking with your children, in the times of talking with your roommate or whatever it is, when, it, when it's presented, are you a missionary who's fearful and won't declare it? We're all called to declare this message. So be faithful be faithful to the housetop that God gives you. You never thought you would hear that today at church, I guarantee you. Be faithful to the housetop that God gives you. Um, D.A. Carson, when he's talking about... Oh, I'm sorry, that's the next verse. Verse 28, let's read verse 28. All right, so here's the next, the next reason. He knows they're fearful, he knows persecution. Here's another reason you should not be fearful. Look at this in 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather... Fear him, and of course Jesus is talking about himself, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Dying is no big deal, is what he's saying. When you realize who God is. When you're living on mission, dying is no big deal whenever you have a great perspective about who God is. Because if they kill you, that's all they can do to you. But if you are not living out what Christ has told you to live out, God, Jesus is telling you, well, then you should be pretty fearful. Because they can kill you. God can kill your body and your soul into hell. Um, Carson says, D.A. Carson says, the worst they can do does not match the worst God can do. The worst thing they can do does not match the worst thing God can do. Now, let's go ahead and put up 
the fourth characteristic, the fourth thing that a missionary understands and knows is this. The missionary does not fear because death is not final. I mean, for most of us, it's very scary. I mean, I have four children, four young children. The prospect of dying is a fearful thing. I don't want that. I want to be able to see my daughter get married. I want to uh, all these things, you know, have well, at least with my son, have grandchildren. The idea of my daughters having grandchildren still freaks me out. So, um, But at least my son doesn't freak me out. I want to see my grandkids. I mean, all these kinds of things I want to see happen. And so there's a part of me is like, I don't want to die. Like, I like living. And that's okay. These are good gifts from God. But also, we should realize that eternity is far more uh, lovely, far more of a place to be, far more great than here. And we're supposed to live for Christ above ourselves. So death is not final because they may kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. Now, if there's a couple of things I want you to see here. Um, first of all, this word hell, uh, Gehenna in the Greek um, is, a, is a definite place that Jesus is, is mentioning. He is absolutely affirming the existence of hell. Sometimes there's some people who believe in what's called annihilationism. They're, we just kind of get, a, after death, we just get a lot annihilated and there is no hell. There is no eternal conscious torment. Those are the theological words that most people use, eternal conscious torment. And that's not the belief of Jesus and that's not the teaching of Jesus, not just here, but all over the Bible. Jesus completely affirms the existence of Gehenna, of hell, and the eternal conscious torment, the nature of it. Um, and secondly, here's the thing. When we're reading this, we're told not to be fearful. I think that some people might make the argument, okay, Jesus, um, your motivation for me to be on mission is through fear. You're saying um, they can kill you, but you know what I can do? And you're like, okay, Jesus, well, then I'm scared of you even more. So I want to run out there and, and, and you know, not be afraid of hell. But I think instead of thinking of this as um, Jesus motivating through fear, I think this is actually a loving plea to his children. Notice where he's telling you he doesn't want you to go. He doesn't want you to go to hell. Eternal conscious torment. Only someone who's eternally loving would hold out this plea to you and say, don't end up there. I am God and I can affect both body and soul, but I don't want you to have that to be your eventuality. Instead, as a loving father, and he's going to tell us in a second, or he talks about father, which I'll have time. We're going to do that next week. Um, as he holds out a plea to us and saying, I love you so much. Please hear my plea and follow me. Though it may cost you your body. It may cost you your body. It won't cost your soul. Martin Luther, about 500 years ago, wrote a lot of theology, but wrote a hymn where he kind of talks about this exact thought. He says this, Let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also. Let things that we have in our hands go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. There's a pastor in Texas, Matt Chandler. He says this quite often, if you ever listen to him. He says, everything you own in about 100 years is going to be in a landfill one day. Something you treasure, you think is so wonderful, is going to be in a landfill. If that's the case, then anything temporal should not have your affections. But Luther says, his kingdom is forever. Jesus has told us that all over and over. 
the gospel of the kingdom. This is what's forever. So since that's the case, if everything we own, all our goods and kindred will be in a landfill one day. The primary thing that should vie for our affection and only should get our affection is Jesus. And his kingdom and his glory. So. Though they may be able to kill our body, they can't destroy our soul and our soul belongs to Christ and we are his missionary. We're going to wrap up here. We'll finish the rest next week, but I want to wrap up this way. I want to wrap up or conclude pointing us back to the end of nine. We've just heard as his missionaries, some of the characteristics we're supposed to know that we're never supposed to be greater than Christ. We know that all wrongs against us were one one day going to be vindicated by Christ. We also know that the missionary is, when the time comes, is ready to proclaim it from the housetops. Whatever platform God gives you, you're supposed to be willing totally to proclaim it. Because we know that death is not final. We know that we get to live with Christ forever. Our soul will be with our great King forever. And so I want to point you back. Are those characteristics of you? Are you realizing, are you living out the fact that Jesus is the one who's supposed to be greater? Not you, not your desires, not your affections, not your needs, not your plans, but Jesus's. Are you putting you or Christ first? Because Christ is supposed to be greater. All wrongs against you. You don't hold things against people. Instead, you lovingly continually submit yourself as a sheep to the wolves because you want them to be converted, not killed. Are you realizing that you're supposed to declare it from the mountaintops? Are you, as God's missionary, taking all the opportunities? Are you scared to death, too fearful to tell people about Jesus? Are you realizing that all they can do is kill you? Let good and kindred go this mortal life also, because God's kingdom is forever, not the things I have. And based on those things, as we look at this and we see Christ looks at the crowds, he looks out and surveys all the lostness. He's bidding us as we see him have compassion. He's bidding us to have this same compassion he has for them. And as we develop that compassion, he, he, he fires off this statement. The harvest is plentiful. Please have compassion for all these lost souls because there's so many people out there that need to hear it. As you're thinking about your missionary, thinking about who you are in Christ, if you're a believer, are you having the thoughts that you're greater than Christ? Are you having that Jesus is greater? Because if you're having the thoughts that Christ is greater, you will have the compassion of Christ and you will see the harvest is plentiful and you will become the missionary. Otherwise, you'll sit back. If you don't don't have the compassion of Christ when you're given the platform, you're going to be too scared to talk. But if you have the compassion of Christ and you see the harvest is plentiful, you realize... It's more important they hear the message than me be safe. Their, their thought of safety, their, their abhorrence to my message, their hatred of these words I have is only going to make them mad right now. But if they get converted, they will spend eternity in heaven. That far outweighs my desire to be safe because I have an assurance of salvation. I have an assurance of blessed eternity with God. And I certainly don't want them to be condemned to the hells of Gehenna, where not only their body, but soul will be eternally, eternally consciously tormented forever. So as we're going to our time of reflection, our time of response. What does your missionary endeavor thus far as a follower of Jesus really look like in comparison to maybe just these four? Here's the deal. 
my response is if I stink is, oh, I'm terrible. I stink. I pray every week. I hear stuff like this or every other week or whenever I read the Bible, I'm just overly amazed again at my lack of desire to want to do mission. I'm awful. Oh, I just want to give up. Please don't forget that Jesus is telling us in 1016 that he's sending you out as innocent as doves. You are holy. In Jesus, you are righteous right now. You may feel like you're doing a terrible job, and you might be, but decisively, in the end, you are declared righteous, 100% righteous. That standing does not change. Rest in that. When you rest in that, that's the motivation that you work from and go out into mission. You don't do mission because you feel terrible about not doing mission. You do mission because Christ has declared you righteous already. And you're so unbelievably thankful for the gospel and what Christ has declared you. And you move out from that with joy and gratitude. And that's how you do mission. You're not guilted into mission. You live it out out of gratitude and worship and love. And when you do, then when you hear things like persecution, you're like, all they can do is kill me. That's all they can do. You kill me, I'm with Christ. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. So wherever you are, just use this next few moments as we sing a few songs and worship Jesus to think on where you are and, and ask God to guide you, ask the Holy Spirit to convict you. But don't forget, if you're in Christ, you're already declared righteous. And as maybe you confess, stand and worship. Because you are righteous in Christ. Just stand and feel the freeness of that. The liberty of knowing you are completely righteous in Christ. You are not condemned. Jesus is not angry. All the wrath of God was put on, on Christ for us, as we talked about. The bruising of the heel has happened for you on your behalf, not on you. And now you stand perfectly righteous and worship Jesus because of that. And... Be sent out on mission to see people come to know Christ. Let's pray. It's so easy, God, for me to realize my utter shortcomings, not just in regard to sin, but in regard to mission. So many moments as I'm going, as I'm living life, that I just don't make disciples the way that you seem to in your word encourage and exhort and admonish me to make disciples. And honestly, I can't get over the fact that you're not angry at me about that. But you still knew that from eternity past and still died for that sin. I don't want to get over your love. I, I want to just be amazed at that love and affection and deep mercy that you've shown me and work out from that in mission. I pray for my friends here that as a church, you've given this mission to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance. You've given this task to the church, your bride whom you died for, whom you love. It is the church's mission. So Lord, give us a deep and holy desire to t carry out this mission as a church.
You have an individual mandate for sure, but a church mandate. This is something that we do together as your body. Help us partner up and live out this mission together in our community groups, in our marriages, in our relationships we have with different people in this body. Be with us now as we respond. Perhaps there's people that need to pray and confess. But Lord, we know that the Holy Spirit not only convicts, but shows compassion. And Lord, as we sing, may we continually realize the righteousness that's been given to us already in Christ and stand and worship Jesus with everything inside of us because of that glorious truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.